to learn about you from your word, the Bible. And Lord, as we come together, I thank you to remember all these things that we can do because you are alive, that you died on the cross for our sins but then rose again and continue to be risen and continue to live so that we can live with you. And Lord, I thank you for that truth. I pray that as we look to your word and we learn more about Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would show us what we need to do to follow you completely. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in the book of Mark. For those of you who are wondering, I know some people might be their first time with us. We're in the book of Mark. If you do have your Bible, if not, you can follow along. Before we get into today's text and do a little bit of review of where we've been through the book of Mark... Uh, I just want to ask this start, this opening question. Have you ever found yourself to be stuck in the middle? Have you ever found yourself in a situation in which you find that you are stuck in the middle of what seems like an impossible situation? To adopt what some people would say, when you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, where there's no option for you to go either direction. I have, uh, yesterday we were, uh, my family and I went over to my sister's well, actually, well, my sister's daughter, so my niece's first birthday party. And we went to the first birthday party, and what they decided to do was something we decided to do back when Josiah was born, and they invited both uh, my sister's side of the family, plus my brother-in-law's side of the family, plus all their friends, to come to this one party. And I could see even in them, what happened as we went to the party is one half of the party was all of my brother-in-law's family and then one half was all our family and it was very separated and like you could tell that there was this there was this struggle between my my, with my sister and my brother-in-law who to hang out with and I remember that happened for us a a long time ago where we had the same idea and when we brought both families together we we were constantly feeling like which side of the family do we spend more time with because if we spend too much time with this side this side's going to be upset and if we do it the other way then the other side of the family is going to be upset it's a lose lose because no matter even if we spent exactly the same amount of time with both sides both of them would probably feel slighted and if we just made the decision that we would just kind of hang out and be ourselves and not even go out to the sides of the family both families would be upset and uh, it seems like an impossible situation and maybe for you it's been something else maybe it's at your job maybe uh, it's uh, at school at some point where you just feel like there's there's only two options and neither of them are good or maybe they're both good but you have to decide and if you decide to go with one then the other one is going to be left out and you're going to make some people upset I think we've probably all been in this situation at some point in our lives this morning as we go to the book of Mark we're going to find Jesus uh, is there, people are attempting to stick Jesus in the middle. But Jesus, as the Son of God, the Servant King, who we've been talking about throughout the book of Mark, he finds a way out from between the rock and the hard place and actually ends up speaking truth into the lives of people who are trying to trick him, people who are trying to test him, people who are trying to put him in a position in which there's a lose-lose. And yet Jesus comes out a winner, and we're going to look at that in the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 12. So if you turn to Mark chapter 12, we'll be reading that shortly. Let's do some review, especially for those who are first time with us or maybe uh, haven't been here through all the sermons of Mark. If you do have your outline and your bulletin, uh, we'll read this paragraph together. You can fill in the blanks as we go. Throughout Mark, 
we see Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. Jesus not only taught this truth, but demonstrated it through parables and miracles. This led to opposition and pressure from those around him, as some would follow him while others rejected him. Jesus' ministry served all people, and during his ministry, he slowly reveals his identity to his followers and tells him that his mission as the Messiah is to suffer and die. His followers should expect then the same to live a life of self-sacrifice. We've now seen Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He shows everyone that he is the Messiah, the anointed king who has come to rule the world. He's shown that. And unfortunately, though, last week we got together and we saw that the Jewish leadership, even in the midst of his declaration as being their Messiah, the Jewish leadership would be condemned by their lack of faith. They chose to look at everything Jesus had said, everything that Jesus had done, all the miracles, all the healing, all the, all the teaching that has just astounded people, that people were amazed by, and the leadership of the Jews said, no, we're not going to believe this, we're going to still go against him. And Jesus very clearly in chapter 11 and chapter 12 says that, look, because the Jews are going to turn their back on me, I am going, my mission to the world is going to come through the church. And that's where we got to this point. And so we as the followers of Jesus and his disciples are going to have an impact on the world for his glory. And so that's where we find ourselves as we are back in Mark chapter 12. Remember in Mark chapter 12 then he just got done giving a parable or or one of those stories that's supposed to relate truth to life. And he gets done talking about the vineyard and how it was abused by the tenants and we saw that that would have indeed been the Jewish people So after he condemns the Jewish people, says to them that, look, you guys are going to reject me, then all of a sudden we see some guys come out from the background and they try to trap Jesus. They try to put Jesus in a spot that he can't win. And so we're going to start in chapter 12, verse 13. Let's read this passage and then we'll break it down in a few pieces and talk about what's happening. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we, do, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him in a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is none other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. All right, so we see three incidences today in which Jesus is being put to the test by different groups of people, and we find that he is going to be interrogated by these people and the whole point of the interrogation let's not miss this once again this is not the first time we've seen this in mark jesus is not being asked questions because they are curious because they're coming to him and really trying to figure out what jesus is teaching that is not their hope we're told right off the bat that they're trying to trap him in verse 13 and that is the point they are trying to ask questions that seem impossible for jesus to answer And so this isn't just simple curiosity, it is simply trying to destroy Jesus by having him really take sides and cause problems. And so let's take this first section as he's asked about paying taxes to Caesar. See, Jesus first is interrogated politically. He is interrogated politically in verses 13 through 17. First of all, we see the group that comes to him. Jesus is tested by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. We know who the Pharisees are. We've seen them throughout the book of Mark. They're the religious leaders of Israel. They're, they are the ones that teach people how to keep the law of Israel. And they are very centered around the nation of Israel. And they, their hope and dream is to throw Rome off of their shoulders and to be independent again. The Herodians are on the other side. The Herodians are, are the, the political party that is saying, let's be in allegiance to Rome. Let's, let's, it's okay to have, be loyal. It's okay to have allegiance to Rome. And actually, our allegiance to Rome should be greater than anything else. And so these two different political parties really are looking at each other and they come together, which is unheard of. I mean, this is crazy. These are people that have completely different perspectives on how the nation of Israel should be run. And we find them coming together to Jesus. You see, this is not just one group of people that is trying to trap Jesus. This is anyone who has any type of authority in Israel because they know what Jesus represents. And that is that he would take their authority if he's truly the king that he claims to be. And so they come to him, these enemies. You know, the, my enemy's enemy is, or I'm whatever it is, I don't know. What, what is that phrase? My friend... Somebody give it to me. The friend, wait, what is it? The enemy of my enemies is my friend, right? Isn't that how it works? Okay, wow, that was bad. Uh, All right, so the enemy of my enemies is my friend, and that is kind of the idea that they're they're coming together 
uh, as enemies, but they're friends because they have a common enemy. That's the point. And they're coming to Jesus to trap him. And here's the question they ask. They ask, should you pay taxes to Caesar? But really what they're asking is, should we be loyal to Rome? They're really asking here, where should our loyalties lie? And they ask him this question, and Jesus should be caught in the middle. He's really being put between a hard, uh, rock and a hard place because here's really what they're trying to get him to do. If he says, yes, it is good to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians are going to be happy because they're going to say, look, he's loyal to Rome. That's great. That's awesome. But the Pharisees would hate him. And the Pharisees would be able to go to the people of Israel and say, look, your Messiah, the one who's saying he's the Messiah, is loyal to Rome. And they would be able to completely discredit everything that Jesus has done. On the other hand, if Jesus were to answer, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which the Pharisees would say, the Pharisees would be very happy. Israel would be very happy. But who wouldn't be happy would be Rome. Rome would say, well, okay, so you're not going to be, you're teaching as the king of the Jews that you're not going to be loyal to Rome. That's a problem. And Rome would come in and take care of the problem. And so Jesus looks like either way he answers, he's going to make one group happy, one group angry, and no matter what he does, and if he just sits back and doesn't say anything, then both groups are going to just have him for lunch. They're just going to be like, there's no way. If you can't answer this, then obviously you can't be the king. And so Jesus has asked this question that seems impossible. But we're told in verse 15, knowing the hypocrisy, Jesus knows what's going on. As the Son of God, He knows the hearts of these men. He knows what's happening. He knows this isn't just a simple question. By the way, we kind of skipped over it, but notice how they first come to Him too. They flatter Him. They make Him, oh, you, we know that you will say whatever is right. We understand that you... They're really buttering Him up, trying to get Him to, to let His defenses down, and Jesus doesn't buy any of it. And he says, I sense that He senses the hypocrisy. And he asks for a denarius. He asks for a Roman coin. And they give him the coin. He looks at it and that's where he says, whose inscription and likeness? Some of your translations would say, whose image is on this? And of course they say Caesar. On the Roman coins would be the inscription of Caesar. That would be the point that it belongs to Rome and it belongs to that emperor, that Caesar. And so they look at it and they say that and Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus amazes them with his answer. Jesus, what seems like he's in a lose-lose situation, comes out as a winner. And how does he do that? Well, he points out the obvious. If this coin has the inscription of Caesar, then it's his. You can give him back what is his. There is no problem with paying taxes to Caesar. Actually, you should pay taxes to Caesar because it's earthly money. It's his. You can give it back to him. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. See, if he stopped right there, the Pharisees would have had a field day. But no, he goes on and he says, but give to God what is God's. This is the simple idea if you think about this. Caesar may own the coins. Caesar may own some things that are in Rome, but what does God own? everything but goes beyond that because if you think about and i don't i've seen people talk about this and i think this makes sense but i can't guarantee that this is exactly what jesus was saying but it sure makes a whole lot of sense because he's talking about the image that is on the coin and he says that is caesar's render to him what is caesar's but then if we're talking about the idea of an image 
where is the image of God? It's not on coins. The image of God is in us. He has created us in the image of God. And therefore, give to Caesar the temporary things of this life, but give your life, your soul, everything you are to God. That is what Jesus says. And at this point, nobody can argue with this logic because he's, he, he has found a way to be in the middle and to come out on top as he shows them that, look, yes, be loyal in the way that you, can, you need to be loyal, but don't replace loyalty with God with loyalty for man. And Jesus answers both of them brilliantly. The rest of Scripture doesn't, is not silent on this issue. I actually, I do want to turn over, I just want to read this this morning. I won't say too many things. But as we go to Romans chapter 13, many of you will know this passage. I just want to read what Paul writes in the book of Romans as it relates to this idea of how do we interact with the political system around us? How do we interact with the authorities that are over us? And I think this is something that we can take and learn for ourselves. How do we respond to our government? How do we respond to the things that are going on around us? And we see in Romans chapter 13, if you'll turn with me to the first uh, seven verses, let's read what Paul has to say. And it's really a reflection even of what Jesus is saying about paying taxes. And Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Well, that makes sense if we like the government. That makes sense if we like our leaders. When Paul was writing this, he was talking about the Roman emperors. They, were, they make any bad political leader we may have look like a bunny rabbit. He looks at this and he says, we need to understand that God has put people in authority and therefore we do have to honor who God has honored. That does not mean that we have to obey them over God's law. You would see throughout scripture that if there is something that we need to follow God's law first... And that's going back to Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, give God everything, but you can give the government what is theirs. But God has to be first. But here the point is we need to respect and honor our authorities in government and in, in, in any other place in our lives. Paul is clear, Jesus is clear, that it, we can and should be involved with the politics, not in a way that we are uh, all about political stuff, but it's about being involved to the point of honoring those who God has put over us. That does not take away from our, our loyalty to God, but it's something we need to be aware of and it's something we need to put at the f- forefront of our thoughts. Well, let's move on in, in Mark, looking at verses 18 through 27. 
The next way Jesus is interrogated, Jesus is interrogated theologically. His belief about God, his belief about what God has said, his belief about Scripture is being challenged. Jesus is interrogated theologically. And what we see starting in verse 18 is we see this group come and they are the Sadducees. They come to him and we're told that they say there is no resurrection. <clears throat> the Sadducees were also a ruling class in, uh, over religious affairs in Israel. They were, very much, they were a lot smaller than the Pharisees, but they were much richer. They were, they were the ones that had a lot of the power because they had a lot of the money. And they come to Jesus and they don't believe in the resurrection. In other words, they believe that once you're dead, you're dead. There's no hope beyond that. Sounds like a lot of things what we might even hear in our world today. And this is what they believe. They say they believe in God and they believe in the first five books of the Bible. They believe in the Torah, but really anything other than that they say you can throw out. That is who the Sadducees are and Jesus is questioned by these Sadducees. Jesus is questioned by them. And they ask this really weird question, right? They're looking at this and they, they start asking about husbands and wives and whose wife is who and who's, who. It's, it gets weird, all right? Who's, who is the real husband of the wife? And they ask this question, but as you boil it down, this is what they're asking. Their question is this, is there really eternal life? Because they don't believe that there is. They believe that this life is all that there is. And so they are challenging Jesus with this really weird question to see what he believes about eternal life. And they think they've got him trapped because there's no good answer to this question in their minds. And so they, 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 they draw up this really complex question. Seven brothers, one took a wife, and then basically all seven died. And according to Moses' law, if a brother dies and has a wife that had not had a child, the next brother would marry that woman so that she could have a child, and that child would come from the line of the brother who died. And the Sadducees say, this happens seven times. Seven guys marry this lady, they all die, they never give her any children, and then she dies. Now, what they're saying is this, so if there's really a resurrection, if eternal life is really true, and they're trying to point out that it can't be, because obviously this is an impossible thing, so therefore there can't be eternal life, because who would be the woman's husband? Since she had seven on earth, who would be the one that would be her husband? And really, this is a shot against eternity. This is a shot against the resurrection because they're, they're trying to point out that it doesn't make sense, that logically this can't happen. And Jesus answers simply with God's word and he goes back to the part of God's word that he knows that they believe in. He actually goes back to the Torah, back to when uh, Moses is called in Exodus to lead the people out of Egypt when they're in slavery. And first of all, he says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So the first thing is he's going to attack. He's going to say, you don't know the Scriptures, but you also don't understand that God has the power to resurrect. You are doubting God's power, and you don't understand God's Word. And he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Marriage is something that God has instituted on this earth to be a picture of His relationship with us. And therefore, in heaven, the ultimate relationship that we're going to have is with Jesus himself, with God himself. And therefore, our marriage relationships are no longer going to have to be the thing that reflects that relationship because it's going to be there. It's going to be real. Just like the angels aren't given in marriage, neither will we once heaven comes. Now, this is weird for us who are married, right? We don't want to think about this. We think that, all right, my, my spouse, well, what's going to happen once I get to heaven then? Am I even going to know who my spouse was 
listen, we are going to love our spouse more than we've ever loved them before when we're in heaven. We just have a whole lot of other people that we're going to be able to love just as much. And that's a cool thing. It's, it's a great thing. It's an awesome thing. And that's what Jesus teaches. And he says that to start with, but then he goes to the word of God to point out the idea that there is a resurrection, there is eternal life, and that we need to live in light of the eternity. And he goes back to when Moses is called at the burning bush. No doubt many of you know that story. Jesus comes to the, or Moses comes to the burning bush, and the burning bush, God talks through it and tells Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses asks him, well, who are you? Who, do, who should I say is sending me? Jesus, or God says, I am. That's that famous, that famous uh, words that he says there. But also in all of this, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says in verse 27 here in Mark, it is not God, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What is the point here? Well, God, when he was speaking to Moses, didn't say, all right, well, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. All of them had already passed away by the time he's talking to Moses. And God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He says that, and the point is it's present. God is presently God for all people. He is presently God. When people die, He does not cease to be their God because they do inherit eternal life. They, are, they will be and are resurrected to be with Him and that's the point. And Jesus makes that clear. That there is eternal life. And God Himself has even said that in the very books that the Sadducees would say they believe are inspired. One other piece that I want to add here, and it's not in the book of Mark, but in the book of John, we see that Jesus taught a very clear truth about resurrection. That people, that eternal life is real. This, isn't, this life we see isn't all that there is, but Jesus wants to make sure that we know exactly where that resurrection is found in John chapter 11, verse 25. John chapter 11, verse 25. Some of you will know this verse. John eleven twenty-five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is very clear. Resurrection and eternal life exist and it comes through him. It comes through believing and giving our lives to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says this to the Sadducees. He proves that there is a resurrection. He proves that their weird question that they tried to trap him with, there is a logic, they think it's illogical for him to have any answer that would make sense. And yet he makes it very clear. You can't trap me here. I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to teach you truth. And that's what Jesus does. And then finally, the last test that Jesus faced, he is interrogated practically. So, so far we've seen a political interrogation, a theological interrogation, now a practical interrogation. Jesus is approached by a scribe. A scribe is, is very important in Jewish. They are ones that really, they pass on the law of God. That's the scribe's job. And so they're almost like a lawyer, like a really good lawyer that knows the law. They know the ins and the outs. They know everything that there is about the law. And the scribe comes to Jesus 
and he hears how he's been answering these questions and he's, he's, he hears that he, they've been answered well, we're told in Scripture. But he wants to give Jesus one more question. And, and honestly, from this passage, I don't know if this scribe was trying to test Jesus as much as he was just trying to understand more what Jesus was saying. But we know in the context that they've been trying to trap him. So if the scribe isn't now, he was coming at the first, at least, with the intention of trying to trap Jesus. But he asked this question, which commandment is the most important of all? But the question boils down to is this, what is the most important thing to do? What is the most important thing to do? Remember, Jesus just said there's eternal life. There's a resurrection. And now the scribe says, okay, if there's resurrection, if there is eternal life, then what is the most important thing to do? What should we do? What is the point of life? What should we follow? And there's a lot of answers that Jesus could have given. And once again, any of the answers would have upset some and made others happy. He could have gone and looked at just a few of the Ten Commandments. He could have chosen another commandment that the Pharisees had set up. All of the things that were out there. And Jesus doesn't... He answers truthfully through using Scripture yet again. And Jesus confirms the truth of love. Jesus confirms the truth of love. See, the scribe comes and says, which is the most important commandment? Jesus could have answered with one specific thing that you do. Don't murder, don't lie. Don't make a graven image. Jesus could have chosen any of those to say it's the greatest commandment. But Jesus answers this. He says, and everybody needs to listen to this in verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, is like this. You shall, lo- you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. After Jesus answers this way, we read in verse 32, And the scribes said, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So Jesus confirms the fact that the most important thing in life is not to follow a rule, but it is to love God and to love others. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments in general, even you can go back to those, and you can see that the first several commandments were about our connection and our devotion to God, and then the rest at the end are all our devotion and our love for fellow man. And so love is the call of the Christian. Love is the call of everyone that God has created. The scribe knew this. The scribe knew that this would be the answer if Jesus knew what he was talking about. And Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy and Jesus does say, this is the greatest commandment. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. And so in all of this, he's trying to be trapped and he teaches one of the most important things. And throughout the book of Mark, this makes sense that Jesus says this because remember, who, what is our ultimate example of love? The ultimate example of love is Jesus himself. Jesus came to this world. He's suffering and dying and putting himself in a place where he is being ridiculed and under pressure and making himself in the likeness of a man. All of this has happened in the book of Mark. In, in the, any gospel we would read, Jesus is the ultimate example of love. 
And that means the times that he was healing people, but it also means the times that he was turning over tables in the temple. Jesus, everything he did and everything he does is rooted in love, and therefore if we are to follow him, then we need to do the same. I want to go to a passage this morning many of you will be familiar with as we talk about this thing, about love. And then we'll go back to Mark to finish with what the scribe says at the end. But let's go to the book of 1 John, if you'll turn there with me. 1 John, this book is all about love, but as we go here, we'll see that John, who is no doubt here to hear Jesus talking to the scribe, John tells us even more about this love. And we're going to look at 1 John 5, starting in verse 7. 1 John 5, 7. And I'm wrong. 4-7. That's right. 4-7. I don't know where the 5 came from. Sorry. Thank you, whoever said that. 1 John 4-7. All right. 1 John 4-7. Beloved, let us, not love one an- or let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who, lo- who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Later on, just for time, we'll skip down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a reflection of what Jesus says in the book of Mark. And first of all, we see He tells us what is the ultimate example of love. It's Jesus who came to this earth to become a suffering servant, like we've talked about in Mark, to die for our sins, to be the propitiation. The propitiation, in other words, to be the full satisfaction of the wrath of God upon sin, the things that have gone against God, the things we've turned against, our back against Him, and Jesus died and suffered to pay the penalty for those sins so that God would accept his sacrifice. And Jesus did that. That is the ultimate example of love. So what is love? It's sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice. Sound familiar? Yes, we've been talking about it in Mark. Self-sacrifice is love. It's putting others, it's putting God first, others second. It's, and then you're behind all of that. That is the point of love and that's how Jesus did. Jesus didn't want to suffer in his physical self. That wasn't something he was looking forward to pain, but he was looking forward to being able to forgive sins as a result of God's plan, and he sacrificed himself for us. And so as we talk about what is love, well, we're told that we love because he first loved us. Our love should reflect his love. Love for God reflects God's love for us, and love for others then reflects the love we have for God. 
It all goes together. And that's why when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he says two things, but it's really all one. Because if we are loving God and putting Him first and sacrificing ourselves for the good of God's glory, then we will automatically be loving others as ourselves because we can't have one without the other. Love is the calling of our life. And Jesus makes that clear in Mark. And here in 1 John, we see it again. Keep your finger in 1 John. We'll be back there in just a moment. But back to Mark chapter 12. After all this happens with the scribe, Jesus says love is the greatest commandment. To put others first, to sacrifice for others. In verse 34, after the scribe says, Yes, Jesus, you've answered this correctly. And verse 34 says this, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared him ask any more questions. Ask him any more questions. They've realized that Jesus' wisdom is too great. There's nothing they can trap him with. But I want to focus on what Jesus says to the scribe. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He says, you are so close to the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say, hey, you understand this. Great, you're in the kingdom. You're saved. You understand, so you're there. Jesus says, you're close. You're not far off. Well, why would that be the case? Let's go back to 1 John chapter 3 this time. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the, other, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I have to believe what Jesus is saying to the scribe is you are not far off because the scribe understands it with his mind. He understands that the greatest commandment is to love. But yet even in his understanding of, what, of the fact that love is the greatest commandment, he's not living it out. Some of us can find ourselves in the same place. We can talk a lot about love and what it means to sacrifice ourselves for others. And by the way, again, I'll say this every week, but we're not talking about physical self-sacrifice. You don't, you're not talking about killing yourself. We're talking about giving up what is most important to you for the good of others and ultimately for the good of God. That is self-sacrifice, and that is what he calls us to as Christians, and, and that is what he wants us to be and to do. And what we're told here, though, is not just to say it, but we need to do it. Love of God and love of others isn't in what we say, it's in what we do. And we don't know what happens to this scribe. I hope that maybe as he watched what happened the rest of Jesus' life and he saw Jesus give himself for the, for the people, one would hope that this scribe would have given his life to Jesus. Understood that Jesus spoke truth, that he needed to love God by accepting the messenger that he sent, by accepting the Messiah of Jesus Christ, accepting his sacrifice on his behalf. We can hope that that happened, but we don't know. Did he ever complete his journey or did he stay here where he understood what God said but didn't live it out? Are we there today where maybe we understand what God says, we understand what we should do and yet we don't? Questions we need to ask ourselves. And just as a quick aside, if anyone is sitting here and saying, oh, this is great to talk about love, but what is love? 
Besides self-sacrifice, and that's the main thing, look at 1 Corinthians 13. We won't read it this morning. 1 Corinthians 13 is a list of what love does. What love does. It doesn't always mean fluffy teddy bears and big hugs. Sometimes love means saying hard things to people because it's what's best for them. It's putting others first. That is what love is all about. And so Jesus has been asked these questions. He's been interrogated. He's been trying to be tricked. They've tried to put him in the middle. And Jesus rises above in each case. He reminds us of loyalty to God is of utmost importance, but loyalty to those that God has put over us in authority is fine as long as it doesn't go against God's law. He's told us that there is eternal life, that there is a resurrection, that this life that we live now is not all there is. That one day we will be in heaven. We will be in eternal life with Jesus. We can have a relationship with him because he is the resurrection and the life. We can live forever and live for eternity and not just for here. And then finally he says, look, if you want to do anything in this life, the only thing that is the most important, the thing that you need to do is to love God and to love others. We start our love for God by simply accepting his gift and from there we will put ourselves behind Him and we will put ourselves behind others for His glory. So then our questions for this morning to conclude with. The first question I want to ask is we just finished talking about the scribe who is not far off from the kingdom. Are you close to the kingdom? Are you only close to the kingdom? Are you sitting here today and maybe... You've lived a long time and you've come to church for a long time or maybe you haven't, you've only been here for a few weeks, whatever it might be, but yet you understand what God's word says. You understand what it means to follow Jesus. You understand self-sacrifice. You understand what this book says in your mind, but it stops there, that you know it in your mind and you may even speak it very well. You might be able to get together and talk about the love of God and how we need to be loving one another and yet it's never translated to the way that you live. It's very simple that Jesus died, he sacrificed himself to pay a penalty that you and I could not pay for the times that we've gone our own way and sinned against him and done things that are against his will and lived for ourselves instead of for him. We've all done that. And the Bible says that if we've sinned and we've done that, then we deserve death, separation from God forever in hell. That is what we're destined for, except for the fact that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life as a man, even though he's God himself. He lives that perfect life. He dies on the cross after all this suffering and after all of his ministry. He dies on a cross, takes the punishment on, of sin on his body. That's what the Bible tells us. So that we don't have to be separated from God forever because he took the punishment he is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath because he died for us. And then he rose again. Can't miss that as he talks about eternal life. He also proved it. He didn't even say it, but he proved it because not only did he die for our sins, three days later he rose from the grave, said sin and death has no more power over me, has no power over others. I bring eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life and I proved it through my resurrection and my life. And then he says, come to me, believe in me, trust in Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he is continuing to do. And if we truly trust him, we will love him. 
And if we love him, then we will love others. That is how we can stop being close to the kingdom and instead be in the kingdom with Jesus. A couple other questions to ask for all of us who are here. Is love our motivation for living? It's easy to say, but is it something we actually live by? Is love really our motivation for living? Love for God and love for others. Putting God first, others second, us third. Is that how we live? Are we living then in light of eternity? Jesus is very clear. There's a resurrection. There is eternal life. So worry about that. Are we living in light of the fact that this life is not all there is? Or are we trying to amass as much stuff and as much money and as much anything we can think of because this is the world we want to live in? Or are we living for his world? Are we living for his kingdom? Are we living for eternity? That's a question we've all got to ask. Let's not get burdened and, uh, with worrying about this life, but let's worry and not, not worry, that's the wrong word. Let's consider the future. Let's consider eternity. And finally, do we truly honor our authorities? Starts with God. We honor him first. But do we also honor those he's put over us? We could give a whole list of what that looks like, but honoring people, respecting people that deserve respect and honor, do we do that in our lives? Because that's another way that we can show our faith in Jesus. With all those things, I hope you consider those questions, consider these stories of what Jesus did as he's, um, as he's tested and as he's questioned, as he's interrogated, Jesus answered those questions for those people, but also for us. Let us learn from them. And with that, let's sing our final song together. As we close this morning, I want to go back to 1 John. 1 John has so much to say about love. But right in chapter 2 of 1 John, let us read this as we close. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that has been from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So much more that we could read. There's so much more we could talk about. But let's remember what Jesus taught us. He was trying to be tricked, but he taught such truth. Let's apply it to our lives. With that, God bless. Have a great week.